Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, Grantham Church. It's good to see all of you in worship, and for those I can't see, but you can see me joining us via live stream, thanks, and uh, I hope that you've come with open hearts this morning, ready to receive what the Lord would say to us. It's Pentecost Sunday, as you've been hearing, and this is the day on the church calendar when we remember how Christ after he ascended, gave his disciples the Holy Spirit, and the church was officially born. And we're going to see today that if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, not only would the church be unable to follow Jesus and make any difference in the world, but there would be no saved people, no personal transformations, and no way to become all that Christ wants us to be as his disciples. Because without the energy and the influence of the Holy Spirit, we're on our own. Left with nothing but our sinful, ungenerated flesh and our limited abilities. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. You may recall the story in Acts chapter 9. When the Apostle Paul traveled to Ephesus, he found some disciples there and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So seeing that this was quite the contradiction, a disciple without the indwelling spirit, they were then baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had placed his hands on them in prayer, the Holy Spirit came on them and they outwardly manifested this change. They came alive to God, you see. They came alive to God and could now begin to live by the Spirit and truly make a kingdom difference, where before they were just well-intentioned and doing a lot of busy work. You see, their minds had accepted something that their hearts had yet to experience. We've seen several examples of this throughout church history. Folks who for years gave mental assent to the faith, operated out of their own strength, but had not truly experienced the indwelling Christ through the filling of the Holy Spirit. One of the most well-known examples of this, and one that many of us are familiar with, is the story of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodists. John and his brother Charles grew up in a devout Anglican home. John learned Hebrew, Greek, and Latin as a kid. And when he was old enough, he went to Oxford. So he was a bright guy. And he had decided to give himself to the ministry. He was a teacher, a preacher, and he made an attempt to be a missionary to Native Americans in the new American colonies. After a failed missionary attempt to the colony of Georgia, at the age of 35, John Wesley traveled back home, burned out, depressed, and defeated. It was in his own journal that he recorded the event on May 24th, 1738. Wesley reluctantly and rather unwillingly 
attended a service that evening at Aldersgate Street in London. And as he listened to the preacher read from Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans, he said that he felt his heart strangely warmed. Wesley wrote, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley said, I felt that God loved me. How many of us need to feel that God loves us this morning? It must go beyond head knowledge and become an experience of the heart. And this is what the Holy Spirit can do for us. You know, it's been said that if it weren't for Wesley's Aldersgate experience, then Wesley and Methodism would likely be nothing more than an obscure footnote in the pages of church history. Now, you think about that for just a moment. And of course, the, the Brethren in Christ, our own denomination, never would have influenced and been influenced by Wesley's theology and practice. So we can see in more ways than one what a difference the Holy Spirit can make in our lives and in the church. Therefore, I want to invite us this morning to reflect on the importance of the Holy Spirit and specifically ask ourselves this. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in me? And am I living by the Spirit daily? And two, do we recognize our need for the Holy Spirit at Grantham Church? That we need much more than brains and brawn if we're going to grow as a congregation and be all that God wants us to be. Let's seek the answers to those questions today. Before we dive into our scripture reading for today, I thought a, a broader biblical background and understanding of the Spirit would be helpful. And there's really no better way to do this than to show you this short video on the Holy Spirit from the Bible Project. I did show this a year ago, but some of you won't remember it. Some of you didn't see it. It's so good, I wanted to show it again. So let's watch this together. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place, but then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but what is God's Spirit? Yeah, so the Spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. <sighs> so you feel that inside you. Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply, that too is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, ruach. 
Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes, and the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. The story is saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's spirit. And so today, the spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity, living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving spirit. Wasn't that good? Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Before we look at Acts chapter 2, just a little bit of background and context on this. Uh, if you're not that familiar with it, the book of Acts is Luke's Gospel, Volume 2. Volume 2. Luke is an educated Greek convert, and he highlights the work of the Spirit and records the story of the first few decades of the early church, ultimately to inspire the church in future generations. And the first chapter provides a brief introduction to the narrative of the Spirit's outpouring. We saw a little bit of that last week at the end of our Easter Encounter series, beginning with the disciples' last moments with the resurrected Christ and Jesus' ascension. In chapter 2, Luke records the day of Pentecost. This is the birth of the church through the coming of the Holy Spirit as Jesus promised would happen. And for Jews who knew their scriptures, as you can see in the video here, the coming Spirit was associated with the last days when all would have access to God's power, calling, and gifts. And so where the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament rested on certain individuals, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament at Pentecost is given to all believers of Christ. As we'll see, without the Holy Spirit, the church cannot continue the mission of Jesus in the world. 
And to set the scene in Acts 2, if you look back at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, we're told that the 11 apostles, together with 120 other believers, gather in the upper room to pray and to seek God as they wait on the gift and the power that he promised. So get this picture. Jesus ascends to the Father. It says 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes. What do they do in those 10 days? They are gathering continually in the upper room, and they are praying. They're not just waiting around. And, and twiddling their thumbs, they are praying and waiting on the gift of the Spirit. And now Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now what is Pentecost? If you don't know, Pentecost in Greek means 50th. This is 50 days after Passover, also known as the Feast of Weeks or the Day of first fruits of the, the wheat harvest. This is like their harvest festival. It's celebrated as the day Moses gave the law at Mount Sinai. So that's interesting if you think about it, is Moses gave the law on Sinai on Pentecost. Jesus is going to give the Spirit new life for a new law. You see, without the new life, we can't follow the new law. It says they were all together. Some translations say they're all in one accord. That has nothing to do with a Honda. It simply means that they're all together in one place. The apostles with 120 people mentioned in the previous chapter are likely in the upper room here. Maybe a rented hall. Possibly some scholars think this could be King David's tomb, which is a historic site in Jerusalem today. They, they think that because Peter later in his sermon is going to say some things about, about King David. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Look at that, like, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. The, the, the windows, is this idea here is not the windows are open and wind blows in, but the wind comes out of nowhere and starts circling the room. The wind, the ruach, as you heard in the video, from an Old Testament perspective, as we saw, is the creative, energizing force of God that once came upon prophets and kings. Oh, you might think of Ezekiel 37. We normally think of that chapter on Pentecost Sunday. This is the valley of the dry bones. Ezekiel, like Joel, which we'll see in Peter's sermon, are prophesying of a day post-exile when God's Spirit will come and be poured out on all people. Jesus said that the coming of the kingdom would be like the wind. You remember that in his conversation with Nicodemus. What is happening is definitely understood to be supernatural, what they had been promised. Look at verse 3. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. What seemed to be tongues of fire. In Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, John the Baptist said that the Messiah would baptize with wind and fire. Notice, the manifestation of the Spirit is visible and audible. Also, if you're familiar with the biblical text, fire in the Old Testament represented the power and the presence of God. Think of it, fire by night, or you can think of the burning bush in Exodus 3. Fire is also a sim symbolic, it's symbolic for judgment and purification. As Charles Wesley penned in his hymn, O Thou Camest From Above, with those words, the pure celestial fire to impart, as Luke says, came to rest on each of them. That is, every follower of Jesus is receiving the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 indicates an initial baptism of the Spirit. So that initial conversion experience, when we first receive the Holy Spirit. But verse 4 implies that there is a filling that is repeatable for the carrying out of effective ministry. And you can see this in the book of Acts. Several fillings, even just on one apostle or one disciple for separate tasks that come and that God sets them apart for. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul, the apostle Paul, commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the filling of the Spirit isn't just a one-time event. So what does it mean that they spoke in other tongues? In this case, it means that they spoke in different known languages. And according to verse 8, which we'll see in just a moment, this appears to be a miracle of the ear, not a miracle of the tongue. Think about that. A miracle of the ear, not of the tongue. In other words, people were hearing the gospel in their own language, the way someone might hear a, a, a translator through a headset at the United Nations. You can think of it that, that way, right? Because as people gather from all different nations of, of the Roman Empire, all different ethnic groups and languages, and yet they're understanding together what this means, that the gospel, uh, they understand the gospel and what Christ is doing through the Spirit. I think it's important to note this, this idea of tongues for, for two reasons. Number one, that speaking in tongues in Acts was always a sign that the gospel had overcome another ethnic and geographical boundary. And the Spirit is needed for that, right? To break through and for the gospel to, to break through and go to a different people group. The Spirit is needed. The Spirit was breaking through worldly obstacles and divides. And two, this example is different than the tongues that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians. We don't have time to go in that today, uh, but we should say that this event is a unique occurrence at Pentecost. Verse 5. Now there were standing in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they had heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Look at that. Then this crowd comes together because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Let's think about this. God-fearing Jews from every nation were in town to celebrate Pentecost, and they are amazed and they are confused by what they're seeing and hearing, and of all people, it's Galileans. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, Galileans are thought to be rural country bumpkins. <laughs> they, 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 they roll their gutturals, so they speak differently, and they're known to be uneducated country folk. And so they say, of all people, how is, it, how is this the case that we're hearing Galileans speak in our language? And then Luke tells us where many of them were from. Look at verse 9. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Now, uh, Luke does exaggerate at times, so obviously he doesn't mean every nation in the world, but yet if this is a broad representation of every nation of the known world, that being the Roman Empire. And check out this map of the nations present on the day of Pentecost. You saw part of this last Sunday. 
So you can see where all of these people came from on Pentecost there in Jerusalem. Now, what does this mean? That means after this experience, after the Holy Spirit comes, after they receive the Holy Spirit and empowered, they then, what, go back to their places of origin. This is, at this point, the Jewish diaspora. That is, Jews that had been scattered over the generations, living in various parts of the Roman Empire, they come back to Jerusalem for this festival. So at this point, this is still a Jewish movement. But over and over, we hear it in the words of Jesus. We could go back further here in the prophets, and we can start to see it here in the book of Acts, that the gospel is going to be bigger than a Jewish movement. Judaism cannot contain the resurrected Jesus. Judaism cannot contain the gospel of Christ. It is for all people. Amen? All people. It's likely here that the gospel probably spread even to Rome before Peter and Paul got there themselves, all because of what happens here at Pentecost. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Amazed and perplexed. They recognized this is significant, but they were unsure of its meaning. Verse 13, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Now, what's really funny, if you keep reading, uh, Peter is going to say, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. In other words, we don't start drinking until after lunch. (laughs) This this isn't what is happening here. Uh, This is a reminder, folks, listen, that the Spirit's activity can easily be scoffed at by those who have not been baptized and filled by the Holy Spirit for those who merely have a head knowledge. And then Peter will respond in a spontaneously powerful way in verses 14 through 39. I don't have time to read all of this, but maybe you should take this afternoon and go do that. This is a changed man. We're talking weeks prior to this, just weeks. This was a defeated disciple, right? He had denied Jesus three times. We saw a couple weeks ago where Jesus forgives Peter, restores him publicly, and reinstates, reinstates him to leadership. And the Holy Spirit comes, and Peter is now a powerful tool of the Lord. You would have thought he had this sermon in his back pocket, waiting to preach it. The Holy Spirit comes on Peter, and he immediately has a Scripture text. And it's in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32, which you heard Pastor Dave read at the beginning of the service. It is this powerful prophecy post-exile that God one day is going to pour out His Spirit on all people, on your sons and your daughters, old people, young people, will dream dreams, have visions. This Spirit is coming. And so, Peter, just to sum it up, says, we're not drunk. God is fulfilling his promises. This is what God said would happen, and now, believe it or not, it's happening right here and right now. And Joel says, if you look at the text that that Peter quotes, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And by the end of Peter's sermon, Luke tells us that many accepted his message and were baptized. And by the end of the day, about 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. Folks, this is what the Holy Spirit can do. And of course, this is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 5, Luke reminded us, Do not leave Jerusalem 
but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So real quick, let's consider why we've been given the Holy Spirit. I'll sum it up this way. Why have we been given the Holy Spirit? So that we might experience God's peace, power, and provision. His peace, His power, and His provision. Do you need some of that this morning? His peace, His power, and His provision. Let's first start with His peace. If you think about it, we could just, let's use some of the most extreme examples of people who are in the most difficult places, the darkest places imaginable. Take Stephen the first martyr. And Stephen also preaches a spontaneous sermon to the religious leaders before they execute him. And he does so with the peace of Christ. He's even able, Luke wants us to see this there in Acts. He says in Acts chapter 6, when Peter or Stephen preaches this sermon, and then they go to stone him, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus. Stephen is empowered to live like Jesus. Or you can think of Paul and Silas after they've been flogged and thrown in prison and they're singing. They are singing in prison at midnight. And then the angels come and set them free. Or Perpetua and Felicity, uh, these third century martyrs who were, who were also executed in an arena. This nursing mother and her slave who believed in Jesus and they go to their death with such peace. Or think about John Wesley. Back to John Wesley, his experience. He said that when he was first sailing to the colony of Georgia, he was sailing with the Moravians, these people who were passionate about sharing the gospel and taking the gospel to the nations. And they were caught in some storms across the sea. And John Wesley, he's freaking out. And yet the Moravians are riding in the boat and they are at such peace. And John noticed that. That was his first clue. Something isn't right with my own heart. I don't have this peace of Jesus. What does the Holy Spirit do? Why is is he given it so we might experience God's peace? Where does this peace come from? It comes from Christ and the Spirit that he gives to us. Listen to what Jesus said. This is what he said when he was with his disciples. He said, all this I have spoken to you while with you, but the Advocate... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Friends, the Jesus who slept through the storm when his disciples were all panicked, thinking that they were going to die, offers us his peace through the Holy Spirit this morning. And secondly, we've been given power. We can look at different examples of this if we had time. The faith and the courage of the early church to transcend borders and boundaries, to take the gospel to places where people weren't too happy to hear it and others who were. And yet the power of the Holy Spirit is given to them to do what could not be humanly done. And then we see through the power of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about this, how how God through Christ in the Spirit gives gifts to the church to do what needs to be accomplished, that we can't accomplish in our own strength the power to change the world around us. Remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, but you will receive power 
He said in Greek, that is where we get the word dynamite. You will receive the dynamite power of God. You'll receive the strength and the power to do things that you could not normally do on your own when the Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit gives us peace. The Holy Spirit gives us power. And lastly, the Spirit has been given so we might experience God's provision. And what kind of provision are we talking about here? Well, several kinds. At first, we're given insight into what is right and wrong. We're given insight. That is, the Spirit convicts. The Spirit gives us discernment. I'll never forget, I, I was reading this story. I, I believe it was around the time of Watchman Nee. Some of you are familiar with this, this uh, Christian, Chinese Christian pastor and missionary. And uh, he taught this couple uh, how to listen to the Holy Spirit. When he was passing through town, he introduced them to Christ. They came to Jesus. He taught them all about the Holy Spirit, and he left them. And one night, they were uh, sitting down to have a meal and their old sinful, pagan, unbelieving selves every night, they would drink a little too much wine, and they would get drunk at, at dinner time. And when one night they sat down after he had left and started to have dinner and just do what they always would do, and they felt like something was wrong. It just something came over them, and, and they couldn't eat. And, and long story short, they went and they, he said, go grab the book. So his wife went and grabbed the book. They started looking in the book. What does the book say? What, what might the Spirit be saying to us? And the Lord led them to the Scriptures about not to, to, to be people of drunkenness, right? To be, not to be filled with wine, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit can do. The Holy Spirit can speak to us. The Holy Spirit can convict us and help us to discern the way of truth if we're listening. The Holy Spirit can give us divine reminders of His truth and show us how to walk in it. Listen to what Jesus said in John 16. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness into the coming judgment. By the way, this reminds me, you know who does a better job of convicting? Not me. Not you, but the Holy Spirit. We need to be able to trust that the Holy Spirit, if we can get people in tune with the Holy Spirit, listening to the voice and knowing how to hear the voice of God, the Holy Spirit can do a much better job than us. Verse 12, Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Also, because of the Holy Spirit, we've been given a guide to be more like Christ. We've said, and we see this in the Scriptures, we can't do this out of our own strength. This is more than just getting your beliefs right and believing differently and voting differently. This is not about that. It is about being filled with the Holy Spirit, having Christ come to live within you and to guide you in knowing how to live. And listen to this, folks. This is good. He's able to show us a way forward when there seems to be no way. There's a, there's a song that was written about that. Do you, remember, do you guys remember that song? Do you ever hear that? When we don't know the way, He shows us the way. When there seems to be no way, God shows us the way. In order to experience this life in us, you see, we must be intentional and focused on living in the Spirit. Listen to what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8. I'm just going to read this with no commentary. I'm going to read this from the voice translation, a fresh translation. Because many of us, we're, you know, we're familiar with Romans 8. So let's just hear it in a different translation. Paul said this, Romans 8, verse 5 through 13. If you live your life animated by the flesh, 
namely your fallen, corrupt nature, then your mind is focused on the matters of the flesh. But if you live your life animated by the Spirit, namely God's indwelling presence, then your focus is on the work of the Spirit. A mind focused on the flesh is doomed to death, but a mind focused on the Spirit will find full life and complete peace. You see, a mind focused on the flesh is declaring war against God. It defies the authority of God's law and is incapable of following His path. So it is clear that God takes no pleasure in those who live oriented to the flesh. Verse 9, but you do not live in the flesh. You live, Paul says, in the Spirit, assuming, of course, that the Spirit of God lives inside of you. The truth is that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ living within does not belong to God. I told you I wasn't going to give any commentary, but I should say one thing here. This is really popular today. You hear people say, we're all children of God. Well, technically, that's not true. Those who are children of God are those who've received the Spirit of God. This is why the Bible uses the language of adoption. We, we become adopted as children of God when we receive the Spirit of God. Now, we're all made in God's image, and we're all broken, not as we should be, but we don't come alive to God, and we don't come into our adoption until we've received the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, if Christ lives within you, even though the body is as good as dead because of the effects of sin, the Spirit is infusing you with life now that you are right with God. If the Spirit of the one who resurrected Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, then you can be sure that he who raised him will cast the light of life into your mortal bodies through the life-giving power of the Spirit residing in you. And in verse 12 and 13, Paul said, So, my brothers and sisters, you owe the flesh nothing. You do not need to live according to its ways, so abandon its oppressive regime. For if your life is just about satisfying the impulses of your sinful nature, then prepare to die. <laughs> but if you've invited the Spirit to destroy these selfish desires, you will experience life. Now, I think if we're honest, we don't really like that last part. Why? Because American society and culture has a negative sense and understanding of freedom. It's an individualistic, hedonistic view that impacts our thinking and even how we feel about this particular scripture here. It says, if I can't do whatever I want, then I'm not really free. Now, we'd all agree freedom's a good thing. Right? I like to be able to shop where I want to shop, to vote how I want to vote. I like the kinds of freedoms that are afforded to me in a democratic society. But you need to recognize that there's something else at work. And this negative sense of freedom is contrary to the freedom that the Holy Spirit gives. This is not the Christian understanding of freedom. Once again, listen to what the Apostle Paul said about this in Galatians chapter 5. Verses 13 through 25, he said, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, 
right? Use your freedom to follow Jesus. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you and I are supposed to use our freedom. Love God, love neighbor. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Verse 16, so Paul says, I say this, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is saying that Spirit needs to be a constant companion. And if the Spirit is a constant companion, and if you're mindful of the Spirit, learning to live and to walk in the Spirit, hear the voice of the Spirit, then you will follow Jesus instead of your flesh. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So you're not able to do what you want to do, or maybe say what you should do. And you say, our culture doesn't get this. Again, because of our negative sense of freedom, that I should be able to do whatever I want to do, and that whatever I think and feel must be good, and I just need to express myself. And folks, the New Testament is against it. <laughs> it is against this sense of freedom. This is not what it means to use our freedom to follow the Lord, to follow the Spirit instead of the flesh. Paul says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, the acts of the flesh, if you want to know what it looks like, this is what Paul's saying, if you want to know what it looks like when you live according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit, this is what it looks like. When somebody looks at your life and they see sexual morality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, we don't ever see that in America, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ugh. Let's get to the good stuff. But the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law those who belong to christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires since we live by this spirit let us keep in step with the spirit so how do we keep in step with the spirit and experience his energy and influence lastly here's how we do it Number one, we keep in step with the Spirit through active awareness. Real quick, active awareness. What is that? This involves, this is what I've been trying to get at. Number one, looking for how the Spirit is at work around you. Do you go through your day with this active awareness? Where is God at work? How is God speaking to me and where is He at work? Because number two, First, it's looking for how the Spirit's at work around you. Number two, listening to the voice of the Spirit. It was a couple weeks ago. Um, I was praying for someone. And I heard the Spirit say to me, this, this person was wanting prayer for some physical problems and, and wanted prayer for healing. And I heard right before I laid my hands on this person to pray, I am about to heal her. Now, it kind of caught me off guard. 
And I'll admit, even as your pastor, I'm not always going through my day aware of the Holy Spirit like I ought. But sometimes the Lord speaks more loudly than other times. And I heard, and I didn't say anything. I, at first, I didn't even know, if, should I, am I supposed to say that? I don't know. Maybe that was just for me. But I heard the Spirit say this to me. Are you listening for the voice of the Spirit? You say, well, I, don't, I just don't know. Is it the Spirit or is it me? Is it the Spirit or me? And I think the Scriptures would say, stop that. If the Spirit of God lives inside of you, quit thinking about it. And trust that the Lord can speak. Now, if it seems bogus, well, this is what Christian community is for. Hey, I think God told me to do this. And, every, and, every, and everybody in your Christian circle is saying, I don't think you want to think that. Rethink that one, you know? Then maybe you should rethink that one. But are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Active awareness. Number two, how do we keep in step with the Spirit? Persistent prayer. L- listen to this. Think about it. Jesus prayed before he chose his disciples. Jesus prayed before multiplying the fish and the loaves. Jesus prayed before performing miracles. The disciples were praying when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Paul prayed when the disciples at Ephesus received the Spirit that they had not heard of before. Because when we pray, folks, kingdom stuff happens. When we pray, we tap into the energy and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Active awareness, persistent prayer. Number three, and the last one, how do we keep in step with the Spirit? Christian community. You've heard me say, and I know it's a bit cliche, you've probably heard it many times, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. We need each other to hear and follow the Spirit. Discipleship in becoming more like Christ happens in community. It happens in community. And again, this pushes back on a whole American culture and the way of thinking. We need each other. You cannot do this alone, and we don't make this up as we go. We have an inherited tradition. It's called historic Christianity. Are you unclear about God's will on a matter? Be like the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11. They come together. They search the Scriptures. What does God want us to do? What does the Scripture say? How is the Holy Spirit leading? You need to make an important decision, or or do you need God's provision for something? Be willing to get together with other disciples and pray and expect the Holy Spirit to show up. This is what we see at Pentecost. You need a fresh encounter with God. Stay committed to all of the spaces in the church and be patient. As I said to someone else this morning, I I hear the Lord saying this to me. Maybe he's saying this to you. Just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. Say, I'm tired. I'm cynical. I'm not feeling good. Keep showing up. And God will in time reward your faithfulness. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want to leave you with these words this morning. From the Lord Jesus, as they are recorded in Luke 11, verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish because he's hungry, you'll give him a snake instead? 
Or if he asks for an egg to eat, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil sinners, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Pentecost, brothers and sisters, is about asking the Lord to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit and for us with open hearts and hands being willing to receive it. Father, we thank you for Pentecost. Lord, we worship you as the living God who is with us in the present, calling us into your good future. You're not a God of the dead. You're not a God of the past or just the pages of history. Lord, and I believe, and together as a congregation, we say we believe that you want to continue to pour out your Holy Spirit on your church. Lord, and it seems clear to us that in order for us to be in a position to receive that Spirit, we need to confess our sins. And we need to prepare our hearts. And so, Father, we do that now. Where we have fallen short, where we have gotten in our own way, where we've been unwilling to forgive, to show mercy, to let it go. Lord, where we have insisted on doing things out of our own strength, where we have falsely believed that the breath that is in our lungs is something of our own doing. We say that we're sorry and we repent and we open up ourselves to you now. Holy Spirit, breathe your life in us. Regenerate us, Lord, that we might change the world. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said.